с милой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to SRB Podcast, where each week we cover topics relating to Eurasian politics, history, and society. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Two guests today. First is Sophie Pinkham on post-Maidan Ukraine, and then I talked to Per Rudling about the history of Belarusian nationalism. My first guest is Sophie Pinkham. Sophie is a doctoral student in Columbia University Slavic Department. Her recent articles include Which Ukraine and Watching the Ukrainian Oligarchs both published in The New Yorker. So you were in Ukraine recently. Uh, what are some of the takeaways that you got from your observations and conversations? Mm, well, it wasn't so recently anymore, just to be clear. I was there in December and January, uh, most recently, although I still talk to people very regularly. Um, I mean, my my feeling was that the situation is very dark. Um, I think that the economic situation um, is creating a really overwhelming amount of, um, of stress and just not just psychological stress. I mean, economic difficulty, obviously. Um, and I think that over here, we tend to hear mainly about the war effort. Um, and that's huge too. People feel so, so threatened and so angry about, um, about what's going on in the East, but people are also extremely worried about the financial situation, um, obviously, the currency is so weak. People are losing their jobs. Businesses are going bankrupt. Um, so when I was there, there was a lot of fear and also a lot of anger, I think. Um, and one thing that struck me very strongly, which was one of the things I wrote about in that first um, New Yorker piece I did, was a lot of anger and resentment, actually, about uh, the draft. Um, and that was largely because of the feeling that, once again, the sort of the great bulk of suffering was being put on sort of everyday people. Um, and oligarchs were continuing to go about their business and be hugely wealthy while ordinary people were losing their jobs and were also starting to be conscript, uh, conscripted. And um, I talked to a bunch of people who were very anxious um, about the idea of themselves being conscripted or about their husbands being conscripted or whose husbands had been um, conscripted um, and that you know and then they're not they have to raise money they have to sort of rush to raise money for their equipment it's totally um, horrifying um, and there was a lot of resentment um, towards the government um, and a feeling a feeling that the government was sort of incompetent or just didn't care about people um, and that the yeah the whole burden was being shifted to, to ordinary people including the volunteers um, who were doing so much to organize the war effort. Just a, a couple of things I want to kind of expand upon is is one on the economic situation, because you're right, we're not getting a lot of uh, reporting, it seems, on the, the the levels of despair that's going on, on in the economic front. Um, how, how is the economic situation felt in Kiev as opposed to, say, in the provinces? Well, I mean, the economic situation has always been very different in Kiev than in most of the provinces, Right. Um, Kiev is sort of one of the centers of relative wealth. Um, but when I lived in Ukraine, I lived in Kiev. So most of my friends, uh, live in Kiev. A lot of the information I get is from there. So I think that certainly the economic situation is much worse in the provinces as it always has been. Um, but people are feeling it in Kiev too. I mean, when your currency, when the national currency loses, um, such, <laughs> such a huge percentage of its value, everyone suffers. And a lot of people have debt um, in dollars. Um, a lot of people have mortgages in dollars. Everyone, when I was there, was very anxious um, about how that would be managed. And I think they did manage to pass um, some legislation to, you know, keep people's dollar debt from, keep people from being held responsible for their dollar debt at the new exchange rate. But no matter what, it, you know, it affects everyone. The other thing you bring up, and you, you pointed this out in your New York article, is is really how volunteers and volunteerism has stepped in to try to help the military effort and kind of individuals having to buy their equipment. And uh, so how does how does this kind of volunteerism, on the one hand, uh, reflect, say, the aspirations and the kind of continual commitment to civil society and some of the goals in the Maidan, but at the same time, this kind of frustration toward the government? 
Um, well, first of all, I mean, the volunteer, uh, what Ukrainian volunteers have accomplished over the last year and a half is unbelievable. I mean, it's really amazing. Um, and meeting some of these people who have just created these military logistics centers out of nothing with almost no resources except donations, um, you know, people who have created centers to relocate refugees, um, to help them find housing, to give them clothes. Um, it's incredible how sort of how much resourcefulness um, people have demonstrated and sort of how much commitment to working for this cause. But on the other hand, the fact that people with no resources, no training, and no background oftentimes in whatever they're doing can exceed the efforts of the state in a matter of months is really a testament to the total you know, incompetence at best of the Ukrainian state and to the ways in which Ukrainian government structures have become sort of totally useless and oftentimes worse than useless. Um, and that was one of the things that I was hearing about at, um, at the refugee center that I visited in Dnipropetrovsk and, um, and at the military logistics center um, that, I, that I visited there. You know, not only are people not getting help from the government for things like military logistics, obviously the government should be doing, should be in charge of that, really. I mean, that's not really not something that ought to be handled by volunteers, I think. Um, but people were doing it, and it was good that they were doing that because without it, a lot of soldiers wouldn't even have helmets. Um, but people were furious. First of all, the government wasn't doing what it should be, but also that sometimes, you know, it, it would be interfering. Um, and people would be afraid that they, you know, that the local government would take away um, would take away the premises from which they were running this refugee relocation center. Um, or at the refugee center that I visited, um, the woman was telling me that, you know, there were these areas where there were sort of half-built houses. And so housing is a huge problem. There's these huge thousands of people who are relocated and don't have jobs and don't have places to live. And she was telling me that um, there was some area where there were a bunch of houses that were sort of half-built. And the refugees said, well, if we can have these houses, we will re we'll finish building them ourselves. You know, we'll do it with our own work. Like, you know, the government wouldn't give them the houses, um, even just to renovate themselves. Um, and that's an old story because I used to work with NGOs in Ukraine. Um, and for me, it was a very familiar story. This isn't a new situation. Um, this has been going on for a long time that the government isn't fulfilling its basic responsibilities to people. And then these incredibly motivated and talented volunteers are trying to fill that gap. But first of all, they can't really do enough. Um, and second of all, oftentimes the government is actually sort of hindering um, their efforts, which causes a lot of resentment. You mentioned the fact there's a lot of frustration and kind of uh, toward the government. Is that being manifested in any kind of political way? Or is it just uh, a lot of kind of grumbling and, and unorganized frustrations? Well, I think there are sort of, well, there are several types of frustration. Um, I mean, in the more recent um, New Yorker piece that I wrote, um, I was writing about these journalists, um, Segedeshenko and uh, Mustafa Nayem, who are now um, both in the parliament. They're both investigative journalists. Um, and they, for example, are, I think, doing a very good job of being sort of watchdogs um, and continuing to draw a lot of attention, especially Leshenko, um, continuing to draw a lot of attention to ongoing corruption and continuing to push for reforms um, and sort of, yeah, really trying to carry through with some of the values that people were... Um, we're fighting for on Maidan. Um, and then on the other hand, there are the, um, the nationalists um, and some of the people from the battalions um, who have been elected to parliament who are extremely critical of the sort of, I would say, more mainstream part of the government. Um, and that type of protest, I mean, a lot of their criticisms are pretty valid, um, but <laughs> the language in which they present those criticisms and the values that they themselves are sort of pressing for are quite alarming. Um, and they're very belligerent. Um, so another thing that I was hearing people talking about when I was there in the winter, um, was this idea of a third Maidan, um, and that people, yeah, that people are very angry and they're very resentful. Um, but what several people said to me was that, you know, this Maidan would start, 
with guns, basically. Um, and that's another issue, is the fact that the country is now full of weapons. Um, and once you kind of let that genie out of its box, it's very hard um, to sort of put it back in. Um, there are a lot of weapons on the arms market, uh, on the black market, um, and I was hearing people sort of talking about how much you could make if you could get a gun and sell it. Um, and some people who I talked to who are sort of survivors of the nineties, um, were saying, you know, it feels, it feels like we're going back to the nineties, um, with this huge amount of inflation and a lot of weapons and a lot of violence. And they're just sort of weird stories that are happening. Um, you know, people just have, they just have a lot of grenades. Really? Um, like in, yeah, like in Kiev. Um, in Kiev recently, someone just threw a grenade into somebody else's yard. And it was kind of unclear why. If there was some kind of dispute, no one knew why. Um, and then in Lugansk, there was a horrible story a few weeks ago where some idiots decided to try to bowl with grenades. And so they, yeah, so they blew up the whole bowling alley. Um, yeah, and it, it's, yeah, it's very dangerous once you have a lot of weapons around and people have different reasons for using them. And there's a lot of, animosity and also a lot of economic instability. We've heard stories about the kind of tensions, the kind of social tensions that we have brewing between, you know, people in the East and the rest of Ukraine because of the war. But you've actually hit on something that I haven't really heard till now, which is the kind of social tensions being manifested in violence in the non-war areas of Ukraine, and that being kind of exacerbated, one by the, the proliferation of weapons, and the other on the economic policy. Does this is do we see a, a kind of social decay happening on, on some level, or a kind of moral decay happening on some level? Well, you know, I think I think it is important. I I really hope, first of all, that Ukraine won't go back to a situation similar to the '90s, and I think it could be prevented. But if you think about what did happen in the '90s. You know, when you have um, a lot of social instability and weak government structures and extreme inflation and high unemployment, um, in that kind of situation, it's there are things that happen, you know. Um, there are increases in crime. There are increases in violence. And this doesn't have anything to do particularly with Ukraine, I don't think. I mean, um, it just it's just sort of a general social phenomenon. There's an increase in drug use oftentimes. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of wondering, because I, I used to work in drug policy and health in Ukraine, um, and I am wondering whether there's going to be a big spike in drug use. I fear that there will be. Um, yeah, but instability and poverty create, you know, often set off sort of a chain of events. And once you throw a lot of weapons, a lot of illegal weapons in there, it's quite dangerous. Um, and, you know, I don't want to say that, I don't want to say, make a generalization that Ukraine is, you know, descending into total chaos. But I think that there are some signs that are alarming. You know, you've painted kind of a, already a complex picture. I mean, on the one hand, you have this amazing, you know, surge of volunteerism and the activity of people kind of supporting each other and helping each other. But on the other hand, you have this kind of darker side. And that leads into a question that, that you kind of uh, an issue you pointed out in, in both of your articles, which is the question of the old Ukraine versus the, the new Ukraine. And, and there is a tendency among some people in the West to kind of frame the Maidan revolution as this kind of great break between that old Ukraine and new Ukraine. So what, what is your opinion of this binary? I mean, I think I think it's very, very hard to get a clear picture of what's going on in Ukraine from abroad because you're sort of besieged by this totally these totally black and white portrayals that are directly contradictory, right? I mean, you have this sort of pro NATO, pro Europe, freedom, rah 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 narrative um, from one side, and then you have this insane Russian propaganda which is increasingly available in English and increasingly like permeating discourse um, in sort of the, on the English language internet as well. And in reality, there are a lot of complexities. Um, I would say that this idea that the new Ukraine has triumphed and this is a brave new world is almost absurd. Um, and I think that most, I mean, most people that I talk to in, in Ukraine um, acknowledge that. I think it's relatively few people who are disproportionately represented in the media um, who will say, you know, we've created a totally new order. Um, in reality, 
there are there are some people some you know really excellent um really highly motivated activists and reformers um but on the other hand you can't you know you can't change a society overnight you can't just get rid of the old ukraine in the course of 2 months um you know there are extremely deeply entrenched power structures ukraine is one of the most corrupt countries in the world it has been for a long time and that's not something that you can change overnight um and also you know what happened in the election with uh poroshenko being elected in some way, that was already a regression to the old order. And I think that Poroshenko has done a pretty good job of presenting himself um, to Western observers, partly because they're so uninformed about Ukrainian politics. He's done a great job of presenting himself as this, you know, democratic, westernizing reformer. But, I mean, who is Poroshenko? Poroshenko is an oligarch with, you know huge business interests in Russia as well as in Ukraine. He didn't give up his chocolate kingdom like he promised. Um, and the majority of the people in government, there are a few reformers, but the majority of people who are in the new government are people who are in the old government, you know, at some point. Um, and many of them are people like Kolomoisky or Poroshenko. Many of them are people who have survived through many different you know, versions of the Ukrainian government. Um, and I think that the Orange Revolution in 2004 was a pretty good example of how how little a, a revolution um, could change the, the status quo, you know. And oftentimes it's just you're putting a different group of kleptocrats um, in power. So if anything, I would say that Ukraine's reforms have only begun. And of course you know, with the economic situation and with the war in the East, the, the circumstances are certainly not so favorable. Um, and I think another thing that's, I, I'm really sort of, maybe I'm not shocked, but I'm disappointed at how little coverage it's been getting is um, sort of thought about what the IMF loan will mean for Ukraine. I wanted to ask you about that since you brought up the economic situation. Yeah, I mean, it's gotten almost no coverage, right? And it's it's sort of interesting to see, you know, I follow Ukraine, obviously, a lot and constantly. And then I follow what's going on in Greece a little or in Spain a little. Um, but it's sort of unbelievable how these two, there's been no discussion at all about what IMF austerity could mean for Ukraine um, and especially when you're talking about a situation where there's essentially a war um, that is being fought largely, at least ostensibly, um, because of this struggle over um, sort of post-Soviet identity um, and because there are a lot of people who are expressing a huge amount of nostalgia um, not necessarily for pure socialism, but for the Soviet Union, right? And are using huge amounts of sort of Soviet iconography and at least for some kind of paternalist state, one could say. Yes, definitely for some kind of paternalist state. And when you look carefully at what people are saying in the east of Ukraine about, you know, why they support the separatists or why they separatists or why they want to join Russia or then why Crimeans, a lot of Crimeans wanted to join Russia. And why did they want to join Russia? Oftentimes it's just because they wanted higher pensions. Um, for a lot of people, the motivation is strictly economic, I think, and is um, is really just about wanting a higher standard of living. Um, and so throwing into this situation, this extremely unstable and difficult situation, um, IMF austerity measures, to me, seems extremely dangerous um, and seems like a really bad idea. Um, and then I don't know if you heard, but uh, Ukraine just passed this new law banning communists. And Yes, I just I read it this morning, yeah. Yeah, banning communist and Nazi propaganda and, you know, sort of saying you can't even discuss the class struggle, basically. Um, th I mean, I think that it, that is just another thing that will be very alienating um, to a lot of people because there are there's still a lot of people in Ukraine, actually, who, you know, believe in Soviet values and who are nostalgic for the Soviet Union. Um, and I think the combination of this sort of, you know, ideological uh, suppression and denying, you know, people who have those values, any kind of political presence, really, you know, saying they can't even have organizations or newspapers, 
Um, and then, you know, combining that with, um, with austerity will not improve the situation. Right, right. I mean, from what I understand, uh, some of the things that, that the IMF deal do, does require is like, a, you know, the cutting of subsidies of, um, of uh, the utilities, for example, and those prices will go up by some like 50% and, and also the privatization of, of uh, enterprises, which have been, you know, subsidized by the state. And certainly that subsidies have been robbed by various, you know, business interests. But at the same time, the question is, if you privatize these, these companies, how many layoffs will you get as a result? Yeah, exactly. And yeah. And I mean, another thing <laughs> that's really amazing is this sort of mass importation of, um, of Georgians from the former uh, Georgian government, which is now which has now been thrown out of Georgia, um, basically, and they're sort of these ultra neoliberal American educators, American educated reformers who are being you know naturalized overnight um, or hired as advisors to the Ukrainian government, and you sort of see what happened in Georgia. That was not really a big success, <laughs> you know. Um, it looked you know America was really happy about it for a while. Um, you know, they liked having, you know, all American educated neoliberals running the Georgian government, but the Georgian people were not so happy. Um, and one of the things that, you know, made Georgians so a lot of Georgians so angry was, yeah, was mass privatization um, of state enterprises um, and it's repeating that path in Ukraine to me does not seem at all like a good idea. And I think it really risks sort of pushing more people into the arms of, uh, of Russia or at least, you know, creating, um, you know, greater support for that political approach. I mean, or to go back to the, the threat of, a, you know, another Maidan, um, you know, the, the Kolomoisky-Poroshenko standoff really focused their, some attention on the you know the existence of Ukraine's private and volunteer militias, and you've already mentioned the the potential threat that they pose. And there's been various opinions that have come out since about you know are these people are just kind of good patriots who saved the Ukrainian state on on the one hand, and then there's the the fact that they pose a potential potential threat on the other. You know, bringing the fight back to Kiev. What's your opinion on this? I mean, how what is the kind of scale of threat that these forces um, pose? Um, well, you know, it actually seems right now it's it seems that the Ukrainian government has actually done a pretty a pretty good job of bringing those forces into the fold. Um, I think that's a an important success for them. Um, they did manage to incorporate most of the battalions into sort of into under they're now under the supervision of, um, of the National Guard and the armed forces, which I think is very important. I'm not sh- I don't know to what extent that is just sort of nominal control and to what extent it's real, but even having nominal control, I think is, is somewhat important. Um, and then recently, just a couple of days ago, um, they appointed, um, Yarosh, who's the head of right sector, um, as some kind of, it seems like some kind of honorary post as um, as a military advisor. Um, but that's an important symbolic step because right sector was the last um, volunteer militia that was holding out and refusing to sort of come, you know, to come into the government at all um, or to put themselves under any kind of government supervision. And right, it was right sector specifically that people were talking to me about in, uh, when I was in Dnipropetrovsk um, as sort of a group that, was technically illegal and they were fighting for the motherland, but they could be put in jail um, after the conflict was over and that this was dangerous. Um, So I think it's really important that they've sort of brought them into the fold um, and that they're no longer sort of totally independent. Um, But, but at the same time, I mean, a lot of these guys, like, yes, they're fighting for Ukraine, but you know, they have gone on the record um, saying that you know they'll continue to fight even if there's a peace agreement, um, they have been very critical of the government. Sometimes rightly so, but they have been very critical of the government, and you know they have a lot of weapons that they bought themselves. So I think you can't really know what's going to happen. Right, and as the picture you've you've pointed out in our conversation is the question of what is Ukraine is still a very relevant one, and what what is the future of Ukraine? I mean, this is clearly something under great dispute. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely, and I think yeah, this this law 
banning communist and Nazi propaganda, I think, is just such an embarrassment um, for Ukraine. And apart from apart from the free speech issue, um, it's really a return, I think, to the types of totally disastrous um, political policies, sort of Ukrainian nationalist political policies that uh, Yushchenko pursued um, after the Orange Revolution um, that have helped get Ukraine into this mess um, that it's in now. Now, finally, uh, according to your the, your bio on your, your New Yorker articles, you're, you are writing a book on living in Ukraine. Um, wh- what are some of the aspects of living you're seeking to illustrate? <laughs> well, my bio, it's, ha- it's hard to uh, summarize the topic of your book in sure, five of course. words or something. <laughs> <laughs> so, but my book is literary nonfiction, um, and it's a mixture. So I lived in Ukraine for several years, and I worked with uh, Ukrainian NGOs um, for more years than that. Um, and now I work on literature. And so my book is, um, sort of a blend of reporting, um, of discussion of Ukraine's culture and history and sort of how it, um, how it plays out in everyday life and in the conflict now. Um, and then some memoir of my time there. And, and how does the the culture and, and literature play into say daily living today? Um, well, part of what I want, part of what I'm trying to do in my book is to resist this extremely black and white portrayal of Ukrainian culture um, that we're seeing in the Western media or also the Russian media, actually, from a different perspective. <laughs> um, yeah, so sort of t- talking about the complexities of, of how um, of how history um, comes in to people's ideas of politics now, um, of different ways, especially that people relate to the memory of the Soviet Union, um, of sort of the mixture of Soviet nostalgia um, and the longing for sort of Western Europe, um, and then also about um, language politics and the ways that Russians and Russian speakers and Ukrainian speakers um, have interacted um, over the years. That was Sophie Pinkin a doctoral student in Columbia University's Slavic Department, and author of Which Ukraine and Watching the Ukrainian Oligarchs, both published in The New Yorker. I'm Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. I'll be back after a musical break. My next guest is Per Rudli. Per is an associate professor in the Department of History at Lund University in Sweden and author of The Rise and Fall of Belarusian Nationalism, 1906 to 1931, 
His most recent article with Tariq Amar is What Standards Should Be Applied When Deciding to Accept Funds, published on the History News Network. Uh, unlike its neighbors in, in the region, particularly Poland, Ukraine, and Russia, Belarus isn't known for its nationalism. How did you come to study something so kind of obscure as the history of Belarusian nationalism? Yeah, that's sort of the million-dollar question, I guess. Uh, I actually got interested in this uh, a while ago. Uh, I did my master's degree in Russian, and uh, I had Ukraine as my minor. And I was interested in the, uh, I guess it's Lukashenko that brought me to this to, to start up with. Uh, I mean, I, I, I had the same sort of uh, reflection, same sort of like, you know, uh, contemplations that you, as you just asked me. Uh, I, I thought it was, you know, sort of odd. You know, here you have a, a region which, you know, correct, you correctly describe as, you know, hegemonically nationalistic, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, right? Western Ukraine. Uh, and, and here you have one country which has had one free and fair election in 1994. And in the second round of election of the elections, over 80% of the Belarusians voted for Lukashenko, a candidate who at, the point, at that point in time essentially promised to do away with national independence and restore the Soviet Union. You know, to me, this was sort of like very, very interesting. This was a country, of course, which had, you know, at least Western Ukraine had, uh, had no less... Soviet, no less, no more Soviet rule in Western Ukraine and Lithuania, and and still it reacted so very, very differently. So that was a sort of the the question, you know. Here, and then I started looking into this, and I realized, in general, you know, here's a country which is larger than Sweden or larger than the three Baltic republics combined, the larger than Austria, and there was virtually nothing written about this, uh, neither in English nor in German. So uh, I got interested in this. Uh, and uh, started working on this first. I was interested in Belarusian nationalists today, but uh, back then I had some difficulties working with archives, getting access to archival material. So uh, I was relying more on materials from Lithuanian and Polish and Western Ukrainian uh, archives. And the whole issue, you know, uh, I, guess, I guess the research question, which I, I guess didn't formulate very explicitly in my book, but I guess... Underneath all this was my research question, uh, why is there a Belarus? This was sort of like what, what sort of got me in, in, uh, interested in this. Here's a country where virtually nobody speaks the, the language as a, as a native language, right? Uh, about 90% prefer Russian, even though they give, the numbers are much higher in the opinion polls because they give those like sort of Soviet answers, right? They, you know, you have to speak to national music if you're Belarusian, you know, even though if you ask them, what's your native language? Oh, Belarusian, of course, because I'm Belarusian. Yeah, but what language did your mother speak to you? Oh, well, Russian, of course, you know, it's, it's confusion. So I was interested in this here. Here's, 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 here's a piece of land where nationalism is very weak, where people don't speak the language, and still, yeah, country, and um, uh, it now exists. And, and, and why is it so different from its neighbors? Uh, that was sort of like what got me interested in this. What accounts for the weakness of Belarusian nationalism? Well, it was a latecomer. It was a latecomer, and when it appeared, it appeared... Um, uh, in competition with much more powerful uh, nationalisms in a region where there are no clear uh, distinct boundaries, no big rivers, no mountain ranges. It's a landlocked country, so hence no, 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 no seas or oceans, uh, but rather uh, areas which are fairly poorly defined. Uh, it's a typical borderland region, uh, cultural I don't want to cite necessarily Samuel Huntington, but it talked about the civilizational fault line uh, where in the West, Belarusian dialects uh, essentially transfer into Polish, and in the East, there's sort of like a blurry zone where somewhere half between Moscow and Minsk, Belarusian dialects uh, become more uh, uh, Russian dialects, Belarusian uh, components, and vice versa. Uh, it's a latecomer, and the number of nationalists were few. Uh, we are essentially talking about a few dozen individuals. Uh, they were dependent on sponsorship from abroad. And uh, for a period, they had very, very successful, you know, this, this seems to be very successful. I mean, they had the Germans sponsor them for a while. The Poles, even Pilsudski held his nose and, you know, paid lip service to Belarusian nationalism. The Lithuanians sponsored and printed their books after 1920, after disappointment with Poland. The Soviets played this card against the, 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 the Poles. And Pilsudski for a while tolerated Belarusian nationalism. 
So it became a tool, uh, and it continued, of course, during World War II for some period when the Nazis also played this, this, this card, but this is outside the scope of my, of my book that I has published. But it sort of it became a tool, a uh, political tool in this, this border region, and it was imposed from above uh, upon uh, citizenship, which in 1919 or 1920 or up until 1925 was essentially overwhelmingly illiterate. And when they became literate, they're not really interested so much in learning Belarusian as learning Russian, which was the language of higher education and, and career advancements. So uh, I guess, uh, to make a long story short, uh, one reason is, I guess, ultimately that the Belarusians themselves do not or did not, up until maybe 1990, for the most part, perceive themselves as a nation. It's interesting you point out that the the kind of local ident- the identities were really localized in the sense of people identified with religion, for example, more, um, or they identified with their village, or they identified with their class. Um, all of these played a factor more than any kind of understanding of themselves as Belarusian. Yeah, of course, these were not people without an identity. They would be, you know, I would be a smith living in a village X, and I would be not a Jew. I would be a Greek Catholic, or sorry, I would be a Roman Catholic. I would be, I would be Orthodox. They would have these sort of identities, right? But they would not think in terms of, of, of modern nations. That was something that the nationalists did. And also the nationalists did not really think in those terms up until very, very late, because they... This was one of several uh, national options. One was this so-called Krajowosz, this identification with a sort of Polish-derived culture, a distinct Polish-derived culture in these borderlands. Another one was, of course, this uh, Zapadno-Rusism, that, that the Belarusians would be a branch of a larger Russian uh, tree, right? So Belarusian nationalists appeared late, and it was not the first option. Uh, it sort of became forced upon them after Lithuania in 1917 and again 1918 declared independence. They had essentially appealed to the Lithuanian nationalists. The idea would, would be to have some form of federation with the Lithuanians, maybe with the Poles, but also with the Ukrainians, because they were aware that the support was so limited. Uh, and once this idea of a federation, this federal approach was impossible, because the Bolsheviks had taken power in Russia and Lithuania's uh, leadership had turned away from, from Russia, they were essentially forced out to, to the, the nationalist option, uh, even though the, the, the people supporting this, you know, I guess you can count them in, in, in the hundreds. And the people on, 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 the, on the grassroots level, they didn't, you know, they didn't really, literally didn't understand what this was all about. I mean, these are people that 85% of which or 90% were illiterate. So, so even to explain what the nation is, uh, what the referendum is, right, it's very hard to do to essentially a pre-modern uh, rural dweller. Uh, there were less than 2,000 Belarusian workers. You know, it's very hard to, to, to root Bolshevism, a working class movement, uh, among essentially uh, pre-modern uh, you know, population, right? Go on a bit about how it, it was a tool from, for, for Lithuania or Poland or even the Bolsheviks, because, because such a small minority bought into this. Like, how did it function as a political tool? Well, when the, uh, when the Germans arrived in 1916, after the, the, the Battle of uh, Tannenberg in 1915, and the Russian front was essentially, essentially collapsed and pushed back, the Germans arrived, and they were uh, very surprised to find out that here was a people that they literally were discovering for the first time. Uh, they expect them to be Russians, but they, they figured out very soon that they didn't speak Russian, necessarily. And they were not Polish either. Uh, many of them were Roman Catholics, but they didn't speak Polish because Polish, the German leadership, knew very well. Uh, of course, the Second German Empire, there was a large you know, Polish minority and Polish nationalism was seen as a problem from Bismarck's Kulturkampf onward. So Polish nationalism was something they didn't trust and they really worried about. So when they discovered that here they have a population which is something else than Polish, they started promoting Belarusian schools, uh, educational establishments, newspapers, theaters, uh, book printing, uh, to use this as a counterweight against Polish claims to this region. Because the Poles did claim, of course, the Vilnia region and uh, this what area, what area which today is Western Belarus, Grodna and Novogrudak and so on. So it was sort of a tool against the, uh, against the, the, the Poles, sort of like, you know, uh, preemptive strike, you know, George Bush would call it, right? You know, <laughs> in, in that sense, right? And the, the irony was, of course, here there was uh, the irony was that a lot of the politically, uh, well, the target group had already been removed, which is so, sort of sort of a paradox because 
right before the front collapsed and the German troops arrived, marched eastward, the Russian Orthodox Church was spreading rumors from the pulpits that the, that the Germans are barbarians, they will rape your women, slice off their, their breasts, and they will bayonet children, uh, and so on, right? Uh, a very similar sort of rhetoric as you could find in the yellow press during World War One about you know Germans bayoneting uh, uh, children and crucifying Belgian pilots and so on, right? It's the sort of like the sort of stuff that uh, that w- was spread. So when the Germans arrived, uh, uh, this 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 prompted a mass exodus of over two million people, most from Belarus and almost exclusively the Orthodox. So over two million people from the area which today is Belarus left, overwhelmingly the Orthodox. So the sort of receptive mass audiences or a nationalist uh, message uh, would not be available. They had left the region and they were out of, sort of, they were not there. Whereas the Roman Catholics stayed. So this essentially rolled back or pushed back the ethnic frontier about uh, 200 kilometers to the east. So uh, in, in that sense it's sort of interesting that uh, once this message, this nationalist message was was disseminated en masse through papers and, and, and other venues and, and schools, the, uh, uh, the audience was not there because the, uh, most of them had, had, had left. And of the Roman Catholics that remained uh, in, in the region, this so-called land over, land over Ost, they were Roman Catholics and leading towards Poland. And then, of course, once the front collapsed again with Imperial Germany, uh, well, the Germans tolerated Belarusian nationalists but never recognized the so-called independence of the Belarusian People's Republic. When the front collapsed again, or front collapsed, but when Imperial Germany collapsed and Germany lost the war, Poland took over this territory. And Poland uh, paid lip service to this idea of Belarusian nationalism and tried to use it, harvest Belarusian nationalism against the Bolsheviks as Poland marched eastward to capture Minsk and, and, and also Kiev, right? And then when the Bolsheviks returned to, to push out the Poles, which they did in 1920, Instead of just expanding and annexing these territories to great the Russian Republic, uh, they actually uh, had been convinced. I mean, Lenin and Stalin themselves were convinced that the Belarusians existed, that there was a Belarusian language, a Belarusian nation, a Belarusian identity. But many of the Bolsheviks, like Zinoviev and Miasnikov and many others, uh, explicitly and, and, and strongly rejected the notion that Belarusians exist and said this was sort of like an artificial creation by, by landlords and by Polish sort of opponents of the Bolsheviks. So the, the so-called Belarusian People's Republic proclaimed in March 1918, which cannot really be regarded as a real state, anyway, seemed to have had played a role to convince, in convincing the Bolsheviks that uh, the idea of setting up a Soviet socialist Belarusian Republic is legitimate, that Belarusians do exist. Even though, I mean, the state was technically, this Soviet Socialist Republic of Belarus was technically independent from its establishment in 1920 until the formation of the Soviet Union in 1922. Technically, it was a fully independent state. Of course, in reality, uh, less so. But uh, through this sort of like back and forth uh, uh, shaking of fronts and, uh, and capturing of territory, Belarusian nationalists became a sort of a tool, sort of a tool that uh, was used uh, quite cleverly uh, by by the Bolsheviks, uh, less cleverly by the Polish leadership, more cleverly by Pilsudski, and uh, uh, in that sense, um, it became sort of a political currency uh, that, despite the failure to establish a Belarusian state, unlike very sharp contrast, contrast Lithuania, Poland, and Latvia. Uh, it's at least established sort of a of a phantom carcass, sort of a sort of a uh, the idea of statehood was regarded as illegitimate, and they continued to use this for political purposes throughout the 1920s. It was really only with Stalin's revolution from above uh, where uh, the idea of Belarusian nationalists became directly suspect and was treated as as treason, and and uh, essentially most almost exclusive uh, with a few exceptions. All these uh, uh, authors, writers, uh, intellectuals, um, activists were essentially shot uh, uh, or deported to Siberia. So it's sort of it's a very interesting project in which the Soviets play this card and uh, then mercilessly went after the same activists, which they sort of brought out of the woodwork in the 1920s. 
Yeah, yeah, I want to get touch on that that the kind of the, the destruction of uh, Belarusian nationalism both in the Soviet Union and in Poland, which is actually quite interesting because, as you say, both of these states kind of used it as a tool and then kind of in the 1930s completely abandoned it. Um, but first, you know, a lot of scholars who write on nationality policy in in Soviet Russia point to the fact that. Interestingly and somewhat ironically, the Bolsheviks created nations, and and Belarus is is definitely one of these. Uh, how did Bolshevik nationality policy create or fill this kind of carcass that you pointed of the state that that ex, that they created? Filled it with kind of nationalist content. Well, they didn't really fill it with nationalist content, but they filled it with like sort of like you know an, an ethnic or, right. or, or na- national content. I would say, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, uh, I think uh, the Bolsheviks, in particular Stalin personally, who wrote in 1913 this book on the Bolsheviks and the uh, nationalities question, right? Uh, many of the leftist radicals at this, term, at this time, they regarded uh, nationalism as a sort of a false consciousness, right? They were sort of puzzled by the idea that here you have, you know, textile workers in Wuch and, and, and port workers in Lipaya or Liba, right? You have, you have workers in, in Helsinki or Turku, in Kharkiv working six days a week, you know, 12-hour pass, uh, trade unions are banned, they're living in barracks, uh, separate from the families, and essentially um, the Akhrana looking after them, right? Instead of getting a class consciousness, many of them developed sort of an, an ethnic or racial, if you can use that term, they used the term at the time, consciousness, right? They get interested in Latvian folk sagas and Finnish uh, folk singing and, 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 and Lithuanian uh, um, well, Lithuanian sagas and Ukrainian embroideries rather than essentially getting a class consciousness. So, so when they developed this sort of national identity, uh, many leftists saw this as a sort of false consciousness, whereas Stalin in particular regarded this as a, regarded this as a, um, a legitimate pursuit or a legitimate, sort of like an, a, a, a reaction to Tsarist oppression. You get Latvian and Finnish nationalisms, nationalisms because the Tsar, the Tsar was... Uh, suppressing the, these movements or, or the, these sort of sentiments. So the idea was, if you figure out, try to figure out what the national activists really want, um, you can sort of uh, sort of steal their fire and present loyal nationalists, so to say, or, or uh, loyal national activists, uh, a little bit like tomatoes in a greenhouse, uh, according to the dictum, national in form and socialist in content, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the idea was that Stalin realized, you know, whatever you say about Stalin, he, he was a thinker and he was quite advanced on this particular point. He realized that this immense landmass from Finland to essentially almost to Alaska, uh, this this uh, sort of rather backward Tsarist empire would have to be transformed into a, a federation of some kind in order to modernize, and therefore this nationality issue had to be solved. Uh, and Belarus, in that sense, uh, showed more semblance to some parts of Russia, in, you know, some parts of the Caucasus or Central Asia rather than to Lithuania and Latvia, in the sense that uh, the literacy was so low. The, the, the land was poor, of course, but so was Lithuania. Uh, Belarus and Lithuania was roughly uh, at the same sort of level of socioeconomic development, uh, but with the difference, of course, that the Lithuanians had a much higher degree of literacy, as did indeed the Roman Catholic Lithu- uh, Belarusians. Uh, as a result, thereof, uh, many of the national activists in Belarus were indeed Roman Catholics. So the idea of, of, of transforming this empire into into federation uh, it came to be applied also in Belarus. So in this sense, uh, the Bolsheviks filled this sort of uh, this republic with a national national content. So it became sort of a nation building rather from above, uh, but really corresponding more to the ideas and the perceptions of the rather small groups of, of nationalists rather than to the masses of Belarusians, most of which were at best indifferent to this or unaware or disinterested in this. And uh, so nationalism rather is a nuisance being forced upon them uh, rather than something very, very useful. Uh, they were particularly worried about uh, Belarusian language education given a sort of bottleneck-like situation in the educational facilities as, uh, as the Belarusization of primary and, and, and secondary school went much quicker than the Belarusization of the universities. That meant that if you sent your kids to Yiddish school, or Polish school, or Belarusian school, uh, more, the more ambitious parents that envisioned the future for the children uh, felt it was best, better to send them to Russian language schools. 
uh, and in order to prevent people from objecting to, to the Bilder cessation, then of course the Bolshevik authorities with a typical heavy-handedness just pushed very hard, uh, harshly for the Bilder cessation of the universities in the late 1920s. Uh, resulting in uh, a lot of resentment from from uh, resentment from the um, uh, university and uh, limited intellectual elites that they had the Belarus also. So, in many ways, the Belarusian Belarusization was d- done in a very carried out in a very heavy-handed fashion and leading to a backlash in that sense. So, rather than responding to 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 a demand, it was imposed on Belarus. And it was done at the same time as Belarus was expanded. Uh, in 1924, it was expanded with Magilyov and Vitebsk, the Vitebsk Magilyov uh, Oblasti. And in 1926, with, uh, with Homel, where over 75% were Russian speakers. Um, uh, and of course, they were transferred from the, from, from the Russian SFSR to the BSSR early in the year. And, 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 uh, and, and less than a year later, they are being requested to switch all the correspondence. Uh, papers, publishing, schooling system from Russian to Belarusian, uh, a language which few of them actually mastered. Uh, so it led to a backlash uh, and made the Bolsheviks rather strengthening, sort of like the idea of rooting Bolshevik rule in Belarus by promoting the national question. It actually very often did the opposite. And this became clear in some ways uh, after the so-called 1927 war scare, where the Soviet authorities uh, pumped out propaganda saying now after a Belarusian national activist had shot the, the Soviet charged affair in Warsaw in 1927, media was filled with claims that uh, this was orchestrated by British intelligence and it's now actually a matter of weeks before the Brits will lead an assault on the Soviet Union uh, in which uh, um, the Chinese will take part also and the Japanese and the, and, and the, the Poles. And uh, if this was actually something Stalin believed in or not uh, is debated, but what we do know is the, that, that the GPU, the secret police, kept very close taps on people's sentiments. And rather than people mobilizing, if this was a purpose of, of, of whipping up a, a war scare to have people uniting behind the Soviet government against an imminent Polish or British attack, uh, the result was opposite. That many people in Belarus and in, and in central Ukraine uh, shared, uh, discussed this with the neighbors and people at the, at the workplace, saying, well, you know, if, if the Poles arrive, it's a good thing. They can't be worse than the Bolsheviks, and we will. This will be have a, give us a chance to get rid of the Bolsheviks. We will hang them in the closest lamppost or shoot them as mad dogs. So you know, we, the Poles were here less than seventy years ago. Well, you know, it wasn't so bad. You know, at least it can't be worse than the bloody Bolsheviks. <laughs> so, so in reality, this sort of war scare revealed that despite five or seven years of forced Belarusization. Uh, Soviet support support for Soviet rule was rather limited, um, and uh, this hadn't really had the effect of of of, of making the Soviets more popular. But on the contrary, uh, the GPU recent it risked uh, creating real centers within the BSSR for nationalists. It risked creating real nationalists rather than real Bolsheviks. And uh, particularly after Piłsudski had come back to power in 1926 and started to relax the rather harsh Polish nationalities policies, which was sort of like the, the, the produced a very fertile ground in, in, in Western Belarus for Soviet propaganda. Uh, Piłsudski now started playing around with the idea of using this sort of in reverse, uh, of, of allowing for certain uh, tolerance of... of, of uh, uh, Ukrainian activism, Ukrainian schooling, and also to a lesser extent Belarusian uh, schools and papers in 1926 27. Uh, so to Stalin, this seemed to be the risk of this, you know, going into to, to be a blowback, a backlash against uh, the Soviet regime, because so Stalin had played this against the Poles with some success. And now it seemed that with Pilsudski back in power, uh, Pilsudski could play this game, uh, and uh, Stalin knew very well that uh, Pilsudski was a very capable and uh, quite a dangerous adversary. He, he remembered the war which had taken place only seven years earlier. So uh, in that sense, it sort of went into, uh, yeah, uh, into reverse nationalities policies once the, uh, once the dangers of this became apparent to Stalin.
you, you already alluded to the fact that all of these kind of activists were basically repressed and, and, and shot during the purges. Um, so what is the what is the ultimate fate of Belarusian nationalism in in Russia, in the Soviet Union, and in, and today in Belarus? Well, what's interesting is that the idea, even though almost all of these people, when you look at these so-called national activists and the national communists, and not only the national communists, but also the NKVD men uh, that ran uh, the secret police in Belarus in the 1930s, virtually all of them have, you know, uh, uh, the end of the days, 1937, 38, 39, or 1940. Virtually none of them were still alive in 1941 when World War I started. Essentially, all of them ended up either in, um, even being shot or being deported, dying in various camps far away from the BSSR. But at the same time, this did not mean the end to the Belarusian sort of national project. At the same time, in the 1930s, as the national activists were shot, the modernization continued, even though it continued increasingly in the Russian language and almost ex- mostly in the Russian language after 1934, and particularly after World War II. But it continued nevertheless. Uh, with the existence of a, a Belarusian National University. In the 1930s, they modernized the city, building a symphony orchestra, national theater. They kept printing books, even under Stalin and also under Khrushchev and Brezhnev, in the Belarusian language. The country was modernized, and uh, uh, Belarusian identity was seen as legitimate and was never really fully suppressed. Um, and when the Soviet Union collapsed, of course, uh, Belarus uh, became independent. It was in 1990 a, a country which many observers uh, regard as a country with a death wish or an, even as an artificial Soviet construct. Uh, many reputable uh, uh, Western scholars did believe that in the early 1990s, and you, you saw that in quite frequently being voiced. Now, ironically, um, Uh, Given the nature of the Lukashenko regime, his reluctance to use the Belarusian language, even though he has lately delivered a speech in Belarusian, uh, given his very strong uh, uh, Soviet references and his reliance on Soviet references in the Russian language, it's very unlikely that Lukashenko is actually has been carrying out a a project of nation building uh, much more elaborate than I think any in any other period in Belarusian history. That now. After 20 years of Lukashenko, people are being accustomed to putting Belarusian stamps when they're sending letters. They're used to having a domain.by. They are, they are used to seeing even, a, you know, such a simple thing as the, the weather broadcast showing the map of Belarus rather than the Soviet Union, traveling Belarusian passports and so on. People are slowly getting accustomed to, by default, living in Belarusian state. And Lukashenko, even though he strongly rejects a sort of symbolisms of the 1918 Belarusian National Republic or Belarusian People's Republic, he is, I think, almost unrivaled in Europe. I don't think I know of any other state in Europe. I'm not familiar with all European states in great detail, but of the states I've been to, I don't, I'm not aware of any other country which puts such a massive effort into this nation building and this is promotion of the Belarusian symbolisms. You know, you have these big posters of, you know, be a good patriot, you know, for Belarus, for our fatherland. The coat of arms is required in public buildings, the president's portrait in public buildings. And this is, of course, uh, partly a result of the fact that there are two rivaling traditions. Lukashenko relies a Soviet Belarusian, a sort of a revised and updated version of Soviet Belarusian mythology and, and, and symbolism in direct, uh, 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 well, in, in the direct polemics and, and, and use it directly against sort of like white, red, white flag and the Pahonia and the sort of the, 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 the symbolisms of, of the BNR. So in that sense, there is now a Belarusian nation building underway. And uh, if Lukashenko dismissed uh, or, 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 or obstructed the sort of a, a commemoration of the Belarusian People's Republic in his perhaps ten, first 10 years as a president, he has slowly come, come around and is now slowly starting to try to appropriate the, symbol, the, symbolic, the perceived symbolical capital of the BNR. In 2008, they had, the, they had big 
symposiums, uh, also in the sort of like pro-government newspapers discussing the legacy of the 1918 Belarusian People's Republic, uh, something which had been anathema only a few years earlier. So Lukashenko is now slowly starting to tap into this perceived political capital of the BNR. Uh, and uh, as uh, political scientist Natalia Leshchenko has argued, he's using Belarusian nationalism increasingly as sort of a protective shell for his state-building project. That was Per Rudling, associate professor in the Department of History at Lund University in Sweden and author of The Rise and Fall of Belarusian Nationalism, 1906-1931. to I'm Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and follow me on Twitter at Sean's Russia Blog. Until next week, bye. Моя Марусечка, моя ты куколка, моя Марусечка, моя ты душенька, моя Марусечка, а жить-то хочется, я весь горю тебя, молю, будь моей женой.